Thank you for tuning in to the audio podcast of Renaissance Church, a new church plant located in Montreal, Quebec. For more information about Renaissance Church, please check out our website, renaissancemtl.com. If you would like more information about joining the launch team of Renaissance, or if you would like information on how you can partner with us to see the gospel advance in Montreal, please send us an email at renaissance.mtl at gmail.com. And it was then that James put his faith in Jesus as the Messiah, as the one sent from God, and he became an important leader in the early church. So you read in the book of Acts, and we can see he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So imagine being the brother of Jesus. Right, that's got to create some strange sibling dynamics in the home. Right? It's got to be a little odd. It could be rough. Why? Because Jesus was perfect. Right? So think about growing up, if you have brothers or sisters, think if, if you had a sibling who was perfect. Their room was always clean. They always did what they were asked. Their homework was always done. Everything was always good. They always obeyed. They always did what was right. Always did their chores. Right? Talk about as, like, uh, as a sibling feeling like, I am a little bit not as good as them. Like, I'm a little bit inferior here. Why does he always do what is right? So for a brother, that could get annoying. Can anyone relate? Maybe you're the one that your sibling is just like, they always do it right and I always mess up. Or maybe you're the one that's like, I don't know, I just do what I'm told. And you've got a sibling that's like, why are you always doing good? That's kind of the boat that I was in. I was always like, I don't know, I'm just going to do what I'm told. And my brother was like, you always are doing the right thing, right? So it creates some, some strange dynamics that in, the, in the, uh, the home of, of Jesus and James, right? Um, so it could create some strange dynamics. At the same time, like as James write this, James could have done some serious like name dropping when he wrote this. He could have said, he writes it, he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, he's the half-brother of Jesus. He could have said, James, the privileged brother of the Messiah. I was closer to him than all of you. Na 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 boo boo. Right? He could have said all kinds of things. And he could have been like, well, you know, I'm important because I know Jesus. He was my brother. I grew up with him. I know him better than you guys. But he doesn't do that. He simply opens this book with his name, then describes himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is incredible humility. What a changed heart. That at one time, he had rejected Jesus, but now he says, I'm a humble servant of Jesus. That's a reminder to us that only God can change hearts like that. That God does change hearts right? Even Kanye. So, here's a side note, thank you, of, of kind of application, because we're going to move on from this. But let's think about James as we go through this whole book and what Jesus, what, what's, what's happening here and the way he positions himself as a servant of God. Let's live like this, as servants of God, right? This is our greatest calling. Humble, willing servants seeking to live our lives for the glory of God. This is what it means to follow Jesus. We follow Jesus and say, okay, God, I'm yours. I want to be your servant. And we see that James has done that. And so we continue in the, in the greeting here, and it gets a little more complicated, right? Because he says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersions, 
and the dispersion. What's he talking about? Well, the 12 tribes refers to the Jewish people. They were made up of 12 tribes of people. So he said this was written to the Jewish people, the Israelite people, in the dispersion. That means they were scattered. If you read in Acts chapter 8, persecution came in Jerusalem, and people were killing Christians for what they believed, and many of the Christians dispersed and scattered and went all over the place. And so James, as the pastor, as the leader of the church in Jerusalem, writes this letter to them. They were dealing with active persecution against them. And it's in the middle of this very real persecution and real trials that James writes to them what we see in verse 2. Count it all joy. This is a letter of encouragement and a letter of challenge to God's people. This was real life for them. It has a lot to us for us to say today. Imagine like if you know someone who's going through a really difficult time and you send them a text message and say, hey, praying for you, hang in there. In a sense, obviously there's a lot more depth than a text message here in the book of James, but in a sense, this is what James is doing as their pastor. He's writing to them and saying, hey, hang in there. Stay faithful. Count it joy. Know that there's something better coming. So the whole passage that we'll kind of wrap up as we go through this morning is this. Our faith is tested through both external trials and internal temptations. And in the middle of the trials and the temptations, God desires for our faith to produce in us endurance, godliness, and grace. The testing of our faith produces spiritual endurance and reveals our need for grace. We've got two main points this morning, and they're actually really simple. They're just that split in two. So the first point, the testing of our faith produces spiritual endurance. Secondly, the testing of our faith reveals our need for grace. So let's start um, with that first part there. We're going to look at verses 2 through 4 and verse 12. So if we read those again, James writes to them. He says, count it all joy, my brothers. And that's actually my brothers and sisters, right? So it's all of it there. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfast and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. And so verse 2 tells us, Consider it joy when you face trials of various kinds. Not if. We know that we will face trials. And they were in the middle of trials as James wrote this to them. Right? We would rather avoid difficulty, pretty much at all costs, but that's not real life. And so in the same way that James writes to the, the, to the, the Israelite people who are facing real persecution because of their belief in Jesus, they're facing trials of various kinds, in the same way you and I face trials all the time. Some big, some small. Various kinds of things that we deal with. And it could be anything from like, our kid is not sleeping at night and we're really tired. That seems a little like soft compared to like persecution. And yet I think when James write this, he says, count it joy when you face trials of various kinds. All of these things that seek to distract us and to pull us away from God and seek to discourage us and seek to bring us away from our walk with Jesus or seek to separate us from the people around us, all of these things, these trials that we face, James says in the middle of that, count it all joy. Is James crazy to say, consider it joy, count it joy? Does he just love difficulty? I don't know about you, but joy is not always the first, things that comes, the first thing that comes to my mind when I face trials. Something even as simple as this. When I'm driving around and I can't find a parking spot, 
joy is not the first thing that I feel, right? Uh, I know that's a very weak example, right? But, jo- <laughs> no, right? We all know that, like, why can't I find a parking spot, right? Uh, and we get mad at people for taking the spots, but they deserve it just as much as we do, right? Um, and so, uh, what do we do with this? Because on some level, we look at this verse and we're like, why is this even in the Bible? Why does James tell us to consider it joy when we face trials? Because on the surface, it doesn't even make sense. How are we supposed to have joy in the middle of trials? Are we supposed to just kind of put on a happy face and be like, oh, it's not really happening, but I'm happy? No. There's a quote here from a guy named, a pastor named David Platt, and I think this is helpful. It says this, trials in themselves are not joyful. They are joyful when we realize they are under the authority of a sovereign God who is accomplishing his purposes through them. God has designed trials for your growth in godliness. Man, there's so much there. When we face these trials, we don't have to look and be like, man, I'm so happy that I'm going through this. That's not what the passage is saying. But he's saying, in the middle of the trial, know that there is joy. There is joy because God is doing something bigger than what you can see in front of you. The joy is not the trial itself. We don't have to be weirdos that really like pain, right? The joy is found in the God who is with us. The God who is over all things. He sees the end. He sees what we don't see. Joy is found in knowing that even in our pain, God is with us, God is faithful, and God is shaping our lives to look more like him. We look at verse 12. He said, blessed is the man who remains steadfast. That when these trials come, can we remain steadfast? And he says, you will receive the crown of life. Well, why is there joy in the middle of trials? Because there's joy because we have an eternal perspective and a belief in the character of God. So when he says this, blessed is a man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised. It's talking about eternity. It's talking about this idea that when we are facing trials, if we only look at what's right in front of us, it's really hard to have joy. But if we step back and say, there is something better. Life is more than what's in front of me right now. There is eternity to think about. And those who remain steadfast will experience the goodness of God and see that crown of life that God provides. And we believe in the character of God, that God is good, that God is faithful, that God loves us. That's where the joy in the middle of trials comes from. So as I was preparing, I asked this question, how do trials make sense apart from knowing Christ? And I think that in many ways they really don't right? Difficulty and pain and suffering really don't make sense. Because some people would say that suffering is bad and it should be like completely avoided as much as possible. Some people might say, well, suffering, somebody did something and they just deserve it, right? They deserve whatever they're going through because of something that they did, right? I don't believe that, right? Some people may say that suffering just kind of happens and that we're at the mercy of like fate or something like that. I don't believe that either, but these are not, these are ways that people try to reconcile why am I facing pain and difficulty? And I don't think there's good answers to any of these things because none of them have to do with the shaping and the building of our character and bringing us into a relationship with Jesus. I think in like everybody's like in day-to-day life, most people live by the philosophy of just avoiding suffering, like and avoiding suffering and pain at all costs. Like, usually, 
Human nature is to say, what's the easy way, and I will do that, right? Has anyone had the experience of just like sitting on your couch and it's nearly time to eat dinner and you have a couple options? You can like get up and go and like cook dinner and make everything for the family, prepare, whatever. Or you could open the apps on your phone and just say, you know, push a few buttons and then food comes to your house, right? That's the easy way to just order food. And I think we're prone to that. We're prone to taking the easy way, to doing what's easier, what's quicker, all of those things. But for a Christian, facing trials is not just something to deal with, something to just get through. There is a purpose. They produce something in us if we let them. Trials and testing of faith produces steadfastness and spiritual endurance. Faith produces spiritual endurance. Endurance. Let's look at those words a little bit. That idea of steadfastness is not a common word that we use a lot. But James says, the testing of your faith. And the image here, if you've ever learned or heard anything about the way that metal or silver or gold or things like that are processed, that's the image here. The testing, the refining of your faith. So I watched a video on YouTube just to like learn about this a little bit. But when silver is mined and processed, they go in and they take huge chunks of rock out of like the side of a mountain or something, and it goes through all these processes. It's crushed, it's separated, and the big pieces get removed, and it gets kind of smaller and smaller and more refined and refined, and then it's heated up, and the impurities are removed over and over until you have pure silver. It's a long process. There's a lot of steps to it. You can watch it on YouTube. That's on your own time, right? Um, But that's the picture of this testing of our faith. That trials and testing are a refining process in our lives. Meant to make us look more like Jesus. Meant to bring spiritual maturity. What's this passage say? That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It doesn't mean that we live as perfect people, but we are perfected as God doing what he wants to do in us. This is the trial and the testing. It's a refining process, a purifying process in our lives. And it says this this faith, this testing of your faith, it produces something. It brings about something. It brings about steadfastness. This is what the scripture says. This idea of steadfastness is something that is firmly fixed in place or position. It's like that idea of like staying power, the ability to stay, to persevere, to be faithful. It's spiritual endurance. I love to run. And when you run, you have to train and prepare. That's the testing, the preparation, and it creates in you the ability to have physical endurance. And so, in the same similar way, the testing of our faith develops and produces steadfastness, spiritual endurance. This endurance was a, there's there's a bigger picture here, because when we look at verse 12 again, James uses that idea of a crown of life. Now, when we picture that, don't picture like a king putting on this like golden crown. Picture like the Olympics and putting that like uh, wreath thing on their head because that's the image that is, that's coming from there. It is saying when we are steadfast, when we endure, when we are faithful in the middle of trials, there is a crown of life. There is an award in that sense. There's something coming that comes from spiritual endurance. And so it has this like athletic reference to it there. Count it all joy when you face trials. We can find joy in the middle of trials that we face because we have a God who is shaping us and forming us to look like him, to be like him, making us steadfast, making us steady with spiritual endurance to keep going. He's working in us to make us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
Testing of our faith produces spiritual endurance that we can keep going, that we grow, we grow stronger, we grow deeper into Christ. We learn to depend on him more and more. We learn to look to him and stay faithful in walking with him even in the middle of pain, even in the middle of suffering. Second thing this morning is that the testing of our faith reveals our need for grace. When we look at this, there are two types of trials that we see in this passage. There are external trials, right? So they were facing persecution. They were facing all kinds of things. We face external trials, things that kind of come against us in life. But also in this passage, there are internal temptations, We've talked about external trials, so let's look at these internal temptations. Let's let's read again verses 13 through 16. It says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So James is telling us, you're going to have trouble from without, But here's the bad news. You also have trouble from within. You also have trials and things that come because of your own sinfulness. We look at these verses. What do we see here? It says that no one, when when, when we're tempted, don't blame it on God. Why? Because God is so far removed from sin. God is holy. God is pure. God does not come to us and tempt us to do wrong. So James is separating these types of trials. That is not who God is. He does not come and say, hey, you should do that. No, he doesn't like put things in front of us and say, can you withstand this temptation? No, God does not do that. So where does it come from? It says each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. Think of fishing, right? A fishing lure. Those fish, see that fishing lure go by? They're like, ooh, that looks really good, right? Fish, when they are lured and enticed, what? by what? By his own desire. We have a problem in our hearts. We have a nature in us that is sinful, that is prone to being tempted, that is prone to giving in to sin. And it gives this picture, right? Desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and when it's fully grown, brings forth death. This is a picture of bad news, that we have an issue in our hearts. We are sinful on our own. Our nature is to run from God, to do our, our own things. And God doesn't tempt us. We do that just fine on our own. That when temptation comes, we are lured and enticed because we have in our hearts a rebellious nature. We have a desire to do wrong. Now, we look at this and we see something really important. We cannot blame our sinfulness on God. God's not the one that is tempting us. And we can't blame our sinfulness on other people. We must recognize our own sin. We must recognize that many times we can say, I'm the problem. And I know that people face all kinds of things. And there are issues where people do things to other people that are awful. People do things that bring brokenness in our lives. And yet in the middle of that, we have to say, but I'm the problem too. Let me give a side note here. Because we look at this and you could say like, man, this is weird. Are people just like awful people? Are we just like worthless, awful, sinful people? Well, yes and no. Stick with me. Why? Why? Because the truth of God's word is this, that we are created in God's image. We are highly valued. Every single person 
is created by God and loved by God and valued by God and God has incredible purpose for them and God loves you unendingly. But in the middle of that, our sin has broken that relationship with God. Our rebellion that's in our own heart shows us our need for God. And it could lead us to just say like, okay, I give up. I'm, I'm, I'm going to do wrong, whatever, I'll go do it. But I think what God wants to do is to work in us to say, wow, I need grace. I need Jesus because on my own, I'm a mess. And there's a difference in kind of owning up to and recognizing, hey, I'm the problem and just being like, I'm worthless, I'm worth nothing. That's not what the Bible teaches. We are highly valued by God. But when we recognize our sin, it pushes us to say, God, I need you. I need your forgiveness and your grace in my life. We need grace. The testing of our faith reveals our need for grace. The temptations and the trials that we deal with reveal our need for God's grace. When we recognize this internal temptation, we recognize this, um, this thing that we are prone to do, that we are prone to sin, we're prone to rebellion, we're prone to doing things on our own, it brings about in us something that, that can say, God, I'm going to run from you and just do whatever I want. Or it will bring about something that just says, God, I need you. I need your grace. I say this often. I think it's so important for us to remember, we are worse off than we realize because of our sin, but God is more gracious. God is more loving than we will ever comprehend. That's the truth of what we talk about of the gospel. We're sinful, broken people in need of God's grace, but we're created by God, loved by God. And when we turn to him in faith, he brings us back into relationship with himself it reveals our need for grace. So as I kind of, as I studied this this week, I noticed in this passage a lot of contrasts. And so you'll see there's a lot of things we haven't gotten to yet, so we're going to hit them kind of quickly right now. All of this kind of under this umbrella of that the, these internal trials, these temptations we face reveal our need for grace. So there's a lot of contrast between God and us, between God and people in this passage. We've already seen the difference in the sinfulness of man and the goodness of God. We looked at verses 13 through 16. The source of sin comes in our own hearts, our sinfulness and brokenness. But look at verse 17. What does verse 17 says? Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is way different than us. He is perfect. He is holy. He gives good gifts even when we are broken and sinful. We see the goodness of God in these verses. So we see this difference, the holiness and goodness of God and our brokenness and need for God. Secondly, we see our own human lack compared to the fullness of God. In verse 5, James says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. We lack wisdom. Every day, almost, I say, in some form or fashion, God, give me wisdom. Give me wisdom to know how to live my life. Give me wisdom to know how to interact with the people around me. Give me wisdom to know how to be a dad. All these things, we lack wisdom, but God is not like us. God does not lack in any way. And when we ask God for wisdom, what does it say? He gives generously to all. I believe it's a prayer that God will always answer. That when we come and say, God, I don't know what to do. God, I need your wisdom. And it may not come right away like a light bulb in your head, right? But when we say, God, I need your wisdom. I look to you. That God 
wants to give us wisdom to know how to live our life, to know the things to do. That in the middle of our lack and our neediness, God has everything that we need. He gives generously. The next contrast we see, the shakiness of man and the stability of God. Verses 6 through 8. So, he says, ask for wisdom. He says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We are prone to doubt, to being tossed back and forth. Okay, a couple weeks ago, my family, we, we got to go with my parents. We got to go to Florida, and we went to the beach, and there were waves. A couple days, there were really small waves, and a couple days, there were really big waves. And I, we, we, went, um, we went somewhere, and I found this slice of pizza, right? Um, this slice of pizza was $5. It was on clearance, and I was like, I need to buy that because why not? So we had this massive slice of pizza. That's Brock floating in the ocean. And so I thought it would be a good idea. I would go out in the waves with the big slice of pizza um, and try to, you know, like ride the waves. Now, the funny thing is there were like actual surfers out there, like guys who were pretty serious. They're like those surfing. And then there's me, this 38-year-old weirdo floating around on a slice of pizza, right? So it was pretty awesome. But when you get out there, it's this big inflated thing. That's not really how surfboards work. Like surfboards kind of float, but they also like cut through the waves. That thing does not cut through waves. So I would lay on it and wait for a wave to come and these big waves would come and it would just like flip me over completely. I never got to where I could stay on it. But God uses, the, James uses that picture here that when we doubt, when we, when, we, when we ask God for wisdom and yet deep in our hearts we're saying, man, I don't really think God's going to do that. He says, don't do that. Trust God because he's faithful. But when we lack that faith, when we don't believe that God will give wisdom, he says you're blown and you're tossed back and forth just like waves. We are prone to double-mindedness. What is that? What's double-mindedness? It's like believing one thing and doing another, or doing one thing, believing another, thinking one day, okay, I'm going to trust God, the next day saying, oh, God's not going to do it. James says don't live that way. Let God work in you so that your faith is deepened. So that you say, God, I don't know how it works, but God, I have faith in you and I ask you for wisdom. But we are prone to shakiness, yet God is stable. Again, in verse 17, it talks about God. It says, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is unchanging. He is stable. He is rock. He is immovable. In the middle of our humanness that's shaky, that's easily blown back and forth by doubt and all these things, God is firm. We need his grace. Verse 16. As I was reading this, I couldn't figure out where this fit. You'll see with me in a minute. Because verses 13 through 15 they, they talk about our own sinful desire. But verse 16 says, do not, be deceived, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. And then it goes on to say, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And I couldn't figure out, okay, does that do not be deceived, does that fit with the part about our sinfulness? Or does that fit with the part about God's faithfulness, like God, who God is? And I think it's both. Because we look at this, do not be deceived about who God is the nature and the character of God, that in the middle of our brokenness, he is good, he is holy, and we are not. And James writes, he says, don't get mixed up, don't be deceived, don't get this all backwards thinking that we've got it all figured out, and God is the one who is shaky. Do not be deceived. Put your faith in who God is, the character of God. 
He is good and holy, and we are not. We need grace. The testing of our faith reveals our need for grace. That when we're tested, when we face difficulty, when we have the internal temptations, all of these things, it can cause us to run from God, or it can cause us to say, God, I can't do this, and I need your grace. And here's the good news, that God gives his grace to us. He is willing and ready to forgive. He is willing and ready to make us new. He has loved us enough to send his son Jesus to pay the price for our sin. The testing of our faith produces spiritual endurance and reveals our need for grace. And we are so in need of him. Because there is a reality that we daily face trials of various kinds, some big, some small. We face difficulty. As we talk about this this morning, that the testing of our faith produces spiritual endurance and reveals our need for grace, how do we apply this? And there's three things that I want to bring up as we kind of um, can, can hopefully make this part of our daily lives to think about, well, how do we do this? How do we let God... How do we go through a process of our faith being tested where it can create in us spiritual endurance, where we can live with joy even in our sufferings? First thing is this. Number one, don't give up. Hopefully that's not too simple, right? I want to encourage you this morning. Don't give up. That when we are in the trial, it's really easy to want to give up. Say, I'm done. I give up. To run and hide. To either say, I'm just going to fix it myself where I'm going to numb the pain in some way. I'm going to do something. I don't like this. I give up. Don't give up. Hear my encouragements today. God is working. He never stops. He is working in you. He is shaping you. He is forming you. That's not my words. It's from God's word. It's from scripture. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when we face trials of various kinds because we know that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness, produces endurance, perseverance. God wants to shape you and form you. God wants to work in you so that you are strong and depending on him and look more and more like Jesus. Don't give up. God is building in you spiritual endurance. He's building in you a deeper faith and a deeper trust in him. Walking with Jesus is a day-to-day, moment-by-moment experience, seeing his faithfulness as we go. And I get it. There are days that we say, God, I don't see your faithfulness today. I don't know where it's at. I don't, I don't feel it. But God, help me put my faith in you. Don't give up. The second thing this morning, when we face trials of various kinds, believe what is true. Believe what is true. Our beliefs are so, this is why our beliefs are so important because they determine the way that we live. So believe what is true because there are a lot of people who will say that suffering or trials are not from God. And they'll say things like, if you just had more faith, then things would be okay. If you just had more faith, then that wouldn't have happened or this wouldn't have happened or this would have happened. If you could just be better, then life would be easier. 
where we hear things like God only wants the best for you, that God's main purpose for you is to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, that everything is good. But this is not truth. And the challenge is to believe what is true. And here's what is true, is that God does not remove all suffering. We will face trials of various kinds. But God walks with us in the middle of suffering. And don't hear me say, God, God will bless our lives. Scripture is full of ways that shows, blessed are those whose faith is in him. Blessed are those who are walking with God. There is blessing that comes from God. But that blessing from God is because he is good, not because we are good. Not because our faith is just like good enough and strong enough. Believe what is true. And when you face trials and people come to you and say, well, if you just had better faith, then things would be better. It's not true. We face trials. And we don't have answers to those sometimes. Suffering and pain and trials are a natural result of a broken and sinful world. I'm broken. You're broken. People around us are broken. In the midst of that brokenness, there's suffering. There's pain. The world in front of us, things we see around us, the good things and the bad things, those are temporary. So believe what is true by having an eternal perspective to be able to say something more, there's something better, that if I put my faith in Jesus, I may not have a perfect life right now, but I have a hope in knowing that Jesus is coming again, that I will be with him in eternity, there's hope and newness of life in that. Does God want what's best for you? Yeah, but his best and our earthly idea of best are not always the same thing. We can trust him that he is enough. You can trust God that he is enough. He is better than anything else that life offers. He's better. He's more than enough to satisfy our hearts. The blessing from God is often peace in our hearts, joy in the middle of pain and suffering. The blessing that God gives is often people around us to encourage us. The blessing that God gives is in knowing that he is more than enough. Believe what is true. Because it's easy in the middle of trials to say, well, I must have done something wrong or somebody did something wrong or whatever it is. But the truth of God's word is that we just, we face suffering. This is the world we live in, but God is with us in the middle of that. Final thing, don't do it alone. Don't go through suffering alone. Don't face it alone. Have you ever watched, this is a, probably heard this analogy before, have you ever watched like uh, National Geographic or Planet Earth or one of these shows that's all about nature and these things? You come to the part where there's the wildebeests or the antelope and they're out in the Serengeti and they're out in the plains and all of a sudden you see the cheetah. You know, the music changes and the cheetah's like sneaking through the grass and you're like, uh-oh, run, guys. This is bad what's about to happen right so the cheetahs come and they start to run who do the cheetahs attack they attack the wildebeest or the antelope or whatever that's separated from the group they attack the one that's weak they go to the one they separate one of them and then they pounce on it and from there it just becomes a mess but you get the picture in your head you need community you need spiritual community and if we're going to say that trials and suffering sometimes are a part of life, 
You need people to walk with you. I need people to walk with me through the middle of those things. You need community that when the pain comes, when the trials are here right in front of you, when temptation is pulling you under, you need spiritual community. Don't isolate yourself. Don't isolate yourself like the wildebeest or the antelope, putting yourself in a position where you get pulled off, where the enemy can say, hey, now I have some victory here. Don't isolate yourself. Well, how do you do that? It's hard, I get it, to reach out, to ask for help. We don't have all the answers as a spiritual community, but we can show up. We can pray with you. We can listen. We can go through things alone. You don't have to do it alone. When pain and suffering and trials, when you're in the middle of those things, and I believe it's one of the ways we find joy in the middle of those things, to say, you know what, I felt alone there's joy because people are with me. People are with me as I go through this. Don't give up. Believe what is true. Don't do it alone. The testing of our faith produces spiritual endurance and reveals our need for grace. I know that there are people in this room who have faced or are facing deep, deep pain. Incredible trials things that I can't quite comprehend. And I want you to know this morning that I'm not saying, and I don't believe this passage is saying either, it's, we're not, we, me and, me and James here, right? No, this passage is not saying, and I'm not saying, we're not minimizing pain. We're not minimizing what you're facing. It's real. It hurts. You don't have to ignore your pain and put on a happy face saying, well, I'm just considering it all joy and everything's good. It hurts. It's real. I know. I want to encourage you that God's not, when we talk about this, we face these trials, it produces something in us. I don't believe that God is sitting off far away somewhere saying, well, let's just see how much they can handle and they're going to grow through it. It's going to help them in their spiritual growth. I don't believe that's the nature and the character of God. We face trials and brokenness because we live in a broken world. God's not just sitting there causing a whole bunch of pain so that we will grow spiritually. Rather, we face trials because of the sin around us. But Jesus came for that brokenness to be healed. That in the middle of the pain, he is with us. Jesus has suffered. He understands our suffering. He knows, and he is for you. He is with you. This is the message of the gospel that we deserve punishment. If we really wanted to look at it from a human perspective, if we have sinned against God, if we have done what's wrong, then we deserve punishment. And all the things that we face, we could just say, well, I've done wrong, so I deserve it, right? That's not the message of the gospel because the gospel is this, that we have a God that every good gift and every perfect gift comes from him. And verse 18 says, of his own will be, will he, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What's that talking about? That God loved us enough to make us new, to forgive our sins. It says you'll be kind of a first fruit of his creatures. What's first fruits? It's like, uh, it's kind of like a, um, in this time they were talking about like if you grew apples or something, the first fruits are the first ones to appear. And they're just a picture and a reminder that there is more coming. There are more apples that are about to come. And so God, when he works in us in his goodness and his grace, what he does in us is saying there's more to come, that he has eternal life at hand for us. The message of the gospel 
then in the middle of our trials, God is with us. He is shaping us and forming us to look more like him. In the middle of our temptation, we realize our deep need for his grace, for mercy, for salvation. And we can't do that on our own because of our sin, because of our brokenness, because we naturally run from God. We deserve punishment, but God did not leave us that way. God has loved us enough. This is why Jesus came, that Jesus was born sinless, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, and Jesus gave his life on the cross to take our place. He suffered for you. He suffered for me. And when Jesus died on the cross, he took our sin upon himself. And he died, and he, was rose, he rose from the dead, conquering death. And so the gospel is this, that we're separated from God, but God has made a way that we can come back to him. And what is the way? Do we just have to work hard and be better? No, that is not the gospel. We can't earn it, but we simply turn to God in faith and say, God, I need you. I have sin. I'm broken. I'm sinful. God, I put my faith in you, that you are the one who has done everything so that I can be made right with God. And the Bible uses this word repentance, which means we turn away from our sin and we say, I don't want to live this way anymore. I don't want to be in charge of my own life. Jesus, I place my life in your hands. I put my faith in you, that you are the one that makes me right with God. And in that moment, the Bible says we are a new creation. We are brought out of our sin and into relationship with God. Run to him today. Lean on him. Trust him. To know that he is working in you for your good. To know that he is enough for you today. He loves you. And while I wish that we didn't have to face suffering, so many times that people that, that I know or with my own kids or whatever it is, we wish that suffering could be taken away and just be like, okay, we don't, we don't really want to deal with this. Let's just have it the easy way. But even in our suffering, God is at work. He's shaping us. He's showing us that we need to trust him. He's showing us that he is faithful and that he will be with us. We're going to pray this morning. We're going to continue to, to worship together and have a time to respond. And, and I would just encourage you, if you need to pray with someone this morning, if you're in the middle of that suffering, if you're in the middle of trial, and we just want to pray with you this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, I need to put my faith in Jesus. Because God calls us to a decision. To either say, no, I'm going to stay in my own sin, I'm going to try to run my own life, or I'm going to surrender my life to Jesus. And maybe this morning you need to say, I need to put my faith in Jesus. I need to stop running from him, and I need his grace. I need his forgiveness in my life. Maybe you need community. You need someone to come alongside you. You need to reach out to someone and say, hey, I just need someone in the middle of my struggle right now. So as we worship, if you want to pray with someone, um, I know Melody's here at the front and Graham is back there at the computer and there's others around. If you just want to pray with someone, we want to pray with you this morning. Even after the service, we would love to do that. But let's pray together. We'll continue to worship this morning. And we thank you that you are good and faithful. We thank you for your word and how you speak to our hearts.
God, it doesn't make sense, but God, as we face trials, we can consider it joy, knowing that you are at work, God. And as we face all the things in our life that cause us to feel so inadequate and so broken that it pushes us to say, God, we need your grace. God, I thank you that you give grace freely to those who call upon you. God, I pray for every person right now that's in the middle of suffering, in the middle of trial and pain. God, would you strengthen their heart this morning? Would you encourage them and show them your faithfulness and your goodness? God, we want to turn our eyes to you and worship you this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.